Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. This is Chantal Mayer Crittenden, the host of the Parlay Podcast. This is already season four, episode nine, and in season four, everything was about bilingualism, multilingualism, cross-linguistic pedagogical approaches, developmental language disorder, and everything in between. Today, I am thrilled to be interviewing Dr. Joanne Parody. We're going to be talking about bilingualism, about heritage language, about language disorders, and how all of these factors and variables intersect. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It is available on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher. Also, be sure to check out the show notes at theparleypodcast.com. And if it's not already there when you check it out, we will soon have the transcript of this episode uploaded on the show notes as well. If you haven't already listened to some of the other episodes of this special series on bilingualism and multilingualism, I strongly encourage you to do so. I've interviewed researchers from as far as the Basque Country as well as the United Kingdom and many researchers who are here in Canada, actually across the country, um, also interviewed a parent of a child, a bilingual child, with a developmental language disorder. So there's so much information for children at the preschool level as well as school-age children. So don't miss uh, out on episodes one to eight of season four. Now let's get on with this episode. I would love to present you Dr. Joanne Parody. Joanne Parody is professor in the Department of Linguistics and adjunct professor in Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Alberta. Her research is concerned with bilingualism in children with typical development and in children with developmental disorders, in particular, children learning English as a second language from immigrant and refugee families. My guest has published more than 70 peer-reviewed journal articles and chapters on bilingual children and is first author of Dual Language Development and Disorders, third edition, which was published by Brooks Publishing in 2021. She is the recipient of the 2020 National Achievement Award from the Canadian Linguistic Association and is also the current editor of the Journal of Child Language. Welcome, Joanne. It is my pleasure to have you here today. Well, nice to be here, Chantal. It is an honor, actually, to have you as a guest on the Parley podcast. I've read much of your work, and it's actually inspired some of my own work. So I'm really thrilled uh, to have you here, and thank you very much for accepting to share your wisdom, your knowledge with myself and with, with the guests of the, or the listeners of the Parley podcast. So I did do a Thank brief- you. I feel like <laughs> I have a lot to live up to now. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I gave, you know, a brief introduction, your biography, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, about your your area of research and work over the past few years. Sure. Well, um, my I have a, a an academic background in many areas, which I think really informs my approach and my interest. So I have um, a BA and an MA in linguistics. I have a PhD in psychology, and I did my postdoctoral studies in communication disorders. So my research brings together linguistic perspective, psychological perspective, and a communication disorders perspective. I also, along the way, got um, a teaching diploma, and I taught Anglais Langue Seconde in schools in Quebec. So I have uh, experience with second language learning and education. Um, my interest in bilingualism stems both uh, from my professional and academic background, but it also is personal for me. Um, I have, um, together with my partner, we've raised two uh, French-English bilingual children who are now adults. Um, so I can really... Um, I really understand um, the process of raising two bilingual children or raising bilingual children more generally um, from both the angle of a researcher and the angle of, of a mother who's, who's you know, been through that experience. Uh, 
I also have a personal um, connection with communication disorders. Uh, my son got um, a traumatic brain injury when he was 19 and has disabilities, language-related disabilities as a consequence of that. So I also have now, at this point in my life anyway, a personal connection to communication disorders and not just a professional one. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry to hear that for your son. Um, that's you know, very challenging nonetheless, but the the knowledge that you bring to it must, must be helpful. And sometimes I always think to myself, sometimes when you know too much about a certain disorder or, you know, it's, I I don't think that it's a blessing, but, but it does, it does help in the end. So. Yeah. It has helped me actually a lot understand Mm -hmm. um, what his, his needs are. And it definitely, definitely on the help side. For sure. Having some knowledge. Yeah. So when I talked about or when I gave the brief biography, I mentioned that you have a particular interest uh, in children learning English as a second language who are from immigrant and refugee families. So why did you find interest in that particular type of work? Well, I, when I did my um, my PhD and my postdoctoral studies, I was in Montreal at McGill, and everything I did was about French-English bilinguals, because um, that was um, a very important and interesting population there, uh, one that many people were doing studies on. And then when I moved to Edmonton in 2000, um, I, I continued a bit of that work, but then it became you know pretty clear to me that the big population of bilingual children in this city, as in many large cities in English Canada, the big population are children who are first and second generation children from immigrant and refugee families. So I I turned my attention to studying those kids because they were the kids who were all around me in my community. Um, And when I was being asked to um, do professional development workshops or ask for advice from professionals, it was always that population of kids that were uh, of concern and of interest. So that's why I kind of moved toward understanding um, more about the language development in English second language learners from a variety of heritage language backgrounds versus French-English bilingual children. Okay. Yeah, interesting how where we do our work really influences the type of work that we, or the type of research that we conduct. Absolutely. You mentioned the key word there that uh, I know a while back when I started looking into, you know, bilingualism, um, I wasn't quite familiar with that term. So heritage language, could you maybe define that for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with it? Sure. Uh, A heritage language is a a kind of minority language. So, uh, so minority languages are simply languages that are uh, less widely spoken, languages of less prestige in society, languages that are not generally languages of government or school institutions like schools and so forth. So um, those are minority languages. And, you know, even French, French is a minority language in, in Edmonton, although it still has a lot of prestige and there are French uh, language schools. Mm-hmm. However, a heritage language is a kind of minority language that usually um, arises through a recent immigration background. So um, a heritage language is usually spoken in immigrant families with an immigration depth of about three generations. So we have first generation, second generation, and third generation. After the third generation, heritage languages tend to fade Mm -hmm. away. Um, So, but Canada, because we're a a country that gets constant waves of immigration, we always have a high number of speakers of heritage languages across the second, uh, the first, second, and third generations. Mm -hmm. And these heritage languages, there's, uh, you know, over a hundred of them that are um, used regularly. Um, probably might even be upwards of 200, depending on what you count as a language. Um, and um, in many of the, the schools in um, English Canadian, in English speaking, English majority cities in Canada, um, you'll get uh, entering kindergarten class where um, there might be 10, 12, 20 languages mm-hmm. <laughs> represented as the heritage languages, the home languages of, of the children. But they, what they have in common is they're all going to be learning English as a second language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and some of them have a varying proficiency levels of, of English. Some of them, you know, are learning it for the very first time, I'm, I'm assuming. And then some maybe yep. have, you know, gone to daycare or, or one parent yep. might speak 
English at home. Yeah. So what does that mean then for the teacher? What, um, when we're talking about um, children who are from, you know, immigrant or refugee families. And so I, I you know, when we, we did the pre-interview, you and I talked about terms like non-elective and elective bilinguals. So maybe before we move along with um, this episode, maybe you can explain those two terms and then and then I'll proceed with the next question. So what is the difference then between an elective bilingual and a non-elective bilingual? So uh, uh, I'll start with non-elective, a bit counterintuitive, but it's easier to explain. So a non-elective elective bilingual is basically a bilingual who's bilingual not by choice, but by circumstance. So um, kids who are, you know, of immigrant families are a perfect example of a non-elective bilingual. They're, they have a home language, a heritage language that's different from the majority language, and learning the majority language is a necessity, and it's the language of schooling. So bilingualism just happens to these kids. Um, an elective bilingual is a bilingual who um, is uh, who is bilingual by choice, and when we're talking about kids, that usually um, it happens through education programs. So, say parents are anglophones, or maybe they you know, speak another language at home, but they choose, say, a French immersion program uh, for their child. They want their child to, you know, get their education through a second language. So that child will be learning French, but it's by choice because they could always go to an English education program and, and not be bilingual. And just, you know, for the record, French-English bilinguals who speak both languages at home are definitely uh, non-elective bilinguals because that is the, those are the languages that are happening in their family. So, Mm -hmm. They're bilingual by by circumstance. Okay, I see. Now, so when you're talking about a lot of these children who are speaking a heritage language at home and enrolled in an English school, then that would be the non-elective bilinguals, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm trying to picture myself as, let's say I'm a classroom teacher and I have, like you said, 10, 15, 20 different heritage languages in my classroom what can a teacher expect in terms of, you know, rate of acquisition? And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of terminology here involved, but yeah. in this instance, let's, let's say that most of them are sequential bilinguals. So they're learning this the English language for the first time at the age of four. Um, what can yeah. a teacher expect in terms of language acquisition for some of these children? Well, first, what they can expect is that it's going to take a long time um, years, in fact, for the children to have English language skills commensurate with their monolingual peers. And part of the reason for this is that they're hitting a moving target. So uh, monolingual children's English language skills, particularly those related to literacy, all keep developing and growing through the school years. So um, second language learners not only have to learn the language to start with, they have to also keep uh, advancing to more academic and uh, levels of use of that language. So that, you know, the moving target aspect of it, plus just the uh, sheer amount of learning required, all sort of point to the fact that it takes what, what we know it takes years for this to happen. And I think that that is really important for teachers to keep in mind who are teaching junior kindergarten or kindergarten that um, the kids will, you know, enter the enter the program perhaps not being very proficient or not, not knowing any English at all. But it doesn't mean that by the end of the school year, they're going to be really, really rock stars in English. It's probably going to take a really long time. That being said, um, and the, the other signature characteristic of English language learners uh, who are children is that there's a lot of individual variation. So some kids are just absolutely spectacular and amazing. And after about 10 months, they will achieve levels of that are, you know, actually on for some measures, like maybe, maybe not vocabulary, but maybe some grammar, really, really, you know, quite commensurate to monolingual peers. Um, and other kids will be really, really lagging behind. And that is normal. So this, this, this huge diversity in abilities, say by the end of that first school year, totally normal, totally expected. Um, and uh, some of the factors that kind of go into why some kids might learn it faster than others, well, there's many of these factors. Um, some of them are to do with children's inherent cognitive capacities, um, so because we're all born with cognitive capacities that are, you know, 
uh, on a different, if you think of a scale, we're all at different points on that scale. And uh, people who are at, you know, the higher levels with memory and analytic skills will be faster language learners. But other other um, reasons have to do with, say, what the first language actually is. So if the first language is a language that is very distant from English, has very different grammar, for example, um, we see those, those, those kiddos learn English a little bit more, certain parts of English a little bit more slowly than kids who come from a language that is closer to English in terms of, of grammatical structures. And then, of course, there's all the aspects of um, language exposure, sort of how much input they're getting in English, how much of it is rich input. Are they using it at home or not using it at home? Are the people using English at home fluent English speakers or not? Because if they're not, they're not really helping their kids. They're not really boosting their, mm -hmm. their, their kids' English. So lots of factors kind of explain why children might be faster learners or slower learners. Um, some of them teachers can't, you know, can't really change or, or shape in any way. Like you can't change the child's, you know, verbal working memory, their cognitive skill, but you can provide um, rich input and experiences for them within the school context and can um, talk to parents about use of language at home. And if the parents aren't fluent English speakers recommending that the children, um, that the parents speak the heritage language to the children and engage to the extent possible in literacy activities in the heritage language, reading, book sharing activities, that actually um, actually helps their English. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but um, a strong foundation in the heritage language there's evidence for this actually um, produces um, better and faster English language acquisition. So the two languages don't take away from each other in development. They actually um, build on each other in development. Mm -hmm. And that's a good point. I know that um, just like you and your partner, my partner and I have also raised our children to be bilingual French English. And when they were very, very little, my husband, my husband knew a little bit of French. So we thought, okay, they're going to learn English just because we live in an English dominant community. And so right. he thought, I'm going to learn French with the kids, you know, one word at a time, just like they're learning. And he did very, <laughs> very well. He was actually a, yeah. excellent. And he was very motivated to yeah. learn. But, you know, after a certain point, he wasn't able to have those rich conversations with the kids and talk yes. about um, more abstract things. And so he yeah. learned very quickly that he wasn't really, like you said earlier, able to support the the development of a rich vocabulary in the children if he was using French as his second language so that's when we kind of decided okay now you you know you can speak your <laughs> dominant language when you need to discuss yeah I think it first came up when I believe what my husband's grandfather had passed away and you know he had to talk about what does that mean what does death mean and I mean yeah. he could not talk about that in French and so um, I think, yeah. like you said, it's important for parents who speak a heritage language and, and maybe are not as comfortable in English to have those those conversations and to bring that vocabulary in the heritage language uh, to their children, for sure. All right. So another point that you made, I really liked it. I jotted down a little note here. I like how you framed it. You know, they're hitting a moving target. And I think that sometimes we forget that, that children who are learning the language of schooling that there are peers who are you know um, monolingual speakers of that language are constantly learning more and more and more and more so I, I like how you frame that and I think that's important to always keep that in mind you also mentioned that there's a lot of individual variation and that you know at the end of the first year let's say it's the end of junior kindergarten or even sen senior kindergarten that's completely normal is there a certain time frame where teachers should be concerned if a child is really not catching on to the acquisition of the second language, you know, how much time do we give that child? Is there some kind of cutoff? Yeah, though, so that's, that's a really interesting question because I've been, I definitely get asked that question a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the first simple answer is not very satisfactory because it's not very helpful. So um, we know 
from the simple answer is that we know it takes three to five years for children um, who are English second language learners to be very similar to or indistinguishable from their monolingual peers. Five to seven years, a few more years per full uh, full abilities indistinguishable from monolingual peers on academic, all aspects of academic language use, which includes oral language and written. So that's a very, very long time. And that's too long to wait to figure out if there are children who um, might have a language disorder, developmental language disorder, or some kind of a language learning difficulty. Um, you just can't wait that long. So um, looking at just their English language learning, um, is probably not going to be the clearest clue as to whether children are struggling because you can't wait three years until they seem to be very, very much behind mm -hmm. their, their peers. So I think that um, definitely what we know about children who have developmental language disorder and are learning English as a second language, they are definitely slower to learn it. But because the individual variation in the typical population is huge, um, it's hard to know, okay, so these kids are kind of at the very tail end of the, of the let's say, the normal curve of development. They're at mm -hmm. the lower end, but, but there's no discernible cutoff between, or that we know of, between kids who actually have a disorder and those that are just super slow, mm -hmm. but typically developing. So really um, what needs to be thrown in the mix other than, gee, this kid seems a lot slower <laughs> than many of the other kids is um, looking for things like how quickly that child catches on to new information in English and new English skills. Are they, um, do they catch on with one or two exposures to say, this is how this works in English or, or exposure to vocabulary items or whatever's going on in the classroom? Do they need many, many iterations before they get something that's being taught specifically? So not just their sort of general overall abilities, but when they're being taught something specifically, like a lesson that is really focusing on, I guess, vocabulary or grammar works better, but people aren't usually teaching grammar <laughs> at this age. But you can, you know, if the child really, you know, is not um, able to get it or to, you know, absorb it super quickly, that's a flag. So we've got somebody who's super slow, Overall, although there are other, you know, that's not in and of itself a flag, but also on a very in, in a focused kind of activity, they're just really not picking up on words and things that other kids are able to do, even the other slow ones. The other side of it is find out what's going on in their heritage language. So find out what's going on um, with their early milestones. Um, I have a, a questionnaire that's available on um, the website. Um, the Chessel website, which is one that um, is called Chessels for Child English Second Language. And it's a parent questionnaire that can be given to find out what um, what children's early milestones are, what were, what, whether they were on time, what the current abilities in the L1 are, because nobody has a language disorder in just one language. So if the child, you know, you found you find out from talking to the parents, they didn't talk until they were two. And they were slow to put words together in combinations and their abilities in their heritage language are, you know, substantially worse than other kids who are also here in Canada in their um, linguistic community. Putting that together with what I just described about their English second language learning patterns, that to me would be absolutely refer that child to mm -hmm. see to to specialists to see uh, what what's going on. So for all the listeners, any links that are, are resources that are mentioned during this episode, I will be posting them on the show notes at thepolypodcast.com. So that questionnaire um, that you mentioned, I will put the link on the show notes. And it is available sure. in many different home heritage languages as well, right? No, it's I've only got it posted in English. It okay. has been translated into other languages. Okay. Um, so, but you see, it's it's not something you hand to parents written. And, and tell them to fill it out. It is designed to be given as an oral interview. Okay. Um, so that's the reason why it is not um, translated. And there are many, many reasons why um, giving parents from different um, linguistic and cultural communities a written form and ask them to fill out. This can be actually quite fraught. Um, sometimes it's 
totally easy peasy, depending on their background and their level of education. But there's also issues with translation. There's issues with how different languages are written. Sometimes the written form of the language is almost a poetic form of the language. Mm. And um, it's really hard to translate an instrument like this into the language. And the um, cultural brokers and interpreters, the group that I work with here in Edmonton and have for many years, who are just awesome, the Multicultural Health Brokers Cooperative, they really prefer to have stuff in English and then they orally um, adapt and translate um, when they're ta- when they they talk to parents uh, because they find that the information um, gets through much much clearer than if the parents have a written version. Okay. Uh, so for all those reasons, mm-hmm. now that being said, I would not hesitate. There is a French version. I haven't got it on my website. Maybe I should, but there is um, a, a version that's developed for in, in by colleagues in Quebec. Um, I also have um, versions in languages that probably aren't going to be really spoken a lot here. So I have European colleagues who have a Dutch version, a Finnish version, mm-hmm. a Norwegian version, a Danish version, but these are not big immigrant communities right, right now in, in Canada. Canada. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's a really good point. I'm glad you uh, highlighted the importance of posing the questions orally by you know a qualified yeah. translator who, who can adapt according to whatever language is, is required. Yeah. Now, I'm and just another gonna... issue I, I did. Oh, can I bring yes, up another please. issue that I mm-hmm. um, literacy levels? It you don't mm. want to make an assumption That's right. that um, all parents newcomers have uh, literacy levels commensurate with what we expect. Uh, of people here, many, especially uh, I've learned this lesson working with refugee populations. Um, so, you know, sometimes opportunities for schooling just never really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's actually quite a source of uh, emotional difficulty, even shame. Um, mm-hmm. On the part of parents, you don't want to embarrass them by handing them this written thing, say, hey, fill it out, um, even if it's written in their language. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, what I was going to say is I just wanted to repeat um, a sentence that you said. So nobody has a language disorder in just one language. And I think, again, that is something else that is really important for uh, teachers or anyone else who might be working with these children. Remember, now, having said that, can children with a language disorder, so this can be a developmental language disorder, or maybe it's a language disorder, you know, associated with another biomedical condition like autism, Mm -hmm. um, can they learn more than one language let's say, successfully? Yes. Well, the, the, the quick answer is yes, In this, um, but I'll tell you how what's behind that yes, because we don't yet have all the information we would like to have to answer that question. So what do we know so far? We know that um, children with um, Down syndrome, autism spectrum disorder, and developmental language disorder can and do become bilingual. And most of our information about this comes from um, her- kids who speak a heritage language at home and are earning, learning English as a second language or say French as a second language in Quebec. And um, these children, most of what we know, though, is about their preschool uh, level experiences in this our preschool or early kindergarten. So we know that um, they uh, when they have a second language introduced early on, like in the toddler years or when they're preschool years or say four or five, that um, beginning to learn that language does not um, make their symptoms any worse. It does not diminish their capacity to speak their other language. Um, And we know from some a bit more spotty research that as they progress in school, they can manage two languages. So they can still maintain bilingualism. Now, this doesn't mean that their abilities in their their two languages are um, any better than they would be if they spoke one in the sense that um, they they will have limitations in, in um, both languages instead of just one, but those limitations will not be worse mm-hmm. by the fact that they have two. So we see very um, similar levels of ability in both languages once they start to um, get proficient or somewhat proficient in the second language. No, obviously, in the very beginning, they're pretty slow to learn that second language, but they can do it and their um, outcomes and their profiles will be quite similar. One of the intriguing things that I found is that their profiles in um, 
their second language will be exactly what we see from children who have the same disorder who learned it as a first language. Mm -hmm. So when I think about something like um, developmental language disorder, kids who have that, who are monolingual English speakers, have uh, um, a lot of extra special difficulties with grammatical morphology in English. This has been extremely well documented. And in children with developmental language disorder, when they learn English as a second language, exactly the same thing that yes they're overall slow but grammatical morphology is um i guess i call it super slow <laughs> so we get that that you know the profile of strength and weaknesses plays out exactly as we see it when we look at how that language like english would be acquired as a first and only language by a child with the same disorder mm-hmm. and i think if we kind of tie that to the fact that Children who acquire a second language will need many, many years to acquire that second language. So if you, mm-hmm. you know, if you take those two um, yeah. facts into consideration, so we know that if they have a developmental language disorder or another language disorder, there are certain elements of language that will be more difficult. And then on top of that, yeah. it takes longer to learn the second language. And so we're, we're you know, you should expect to see some differences um, if you're comparing this child to a you know, typically developing child, of course. Yes. But I think there's a couple of important um, other issues to think about is that um, when we talk about, you know, can uh, children with uh, language and communication disorders become bilingual, we have to also think about the heritage language or that other language because um, there's, we don't have, I wouldn't say super solid research information at this point, but we have stuff that's pointing at the possibility that children with language and communication disorders are at risk for loss of their first language, Mm. their heritage language, more so than typically developing children, particularly the information that we have on children with autism spectrum disorder seems to point in that direction. And the reasons for this are kind of, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty common sense. Um, A lot of the children get diagnosed when they're around three and they get a lot of three, three and a half, a lot of therapy that's in English. Mm -hmm. So they get exposed to a lot of English really early. Um, A lot of the times parents are uh, given activities to do at home with their child that are in English only. And some parents are advised to stop speaking the heritage Mm -hmm. language or reduce the amount of the heritage language with their child. So putting it all together, we can see that these children... um, uh, you know, their ability to keep up or maintain the heritage language can be compromised. And this has nothing to do with their capacity for bilingualism. This is about opportunity and circumstance, because if you're reducing their amount of exposure and you're not using it and parents are afraid that if their child is, if if they continue to speak their heritage language, it's going to compromise their child's development, then, you know, all of this plays uh, a role in diminishing the opportunity for bilingualism. But um, I am thoroughly convinced by the research that the capacity is absolutely there. It's about creating um, the right opportunities. And right now, those opportunities are very often taken away mm-hmm. um, from children so that, yeah, they're, they're learning English and yeah, they will learn English. And, but what about that other language? Because yeah. if they end up just speaking English then they're not really bilingual anymore. And there are some anecdotal, but heartbreaking stories of situations where parents have lost the ability to communicate freely and easily with their child because the parents are not fluent in English. And, um, yeah. so their English is at a kind of a low intermediate level. Um, but then they've got, you know, other kids in the families, let's say, who speak both English and the heritage language, and they've got this, you know, one child who's got a disability, let's say it's, you know, their autism spectrum disorder, who's an English functionally monolingual speaker. So mm-hmm. how does that all work? And especially if the child is moderately severely affected, you know, their social network, their family is going to be super important for their social network, for caregiving, for, you know, long-term relationships and so on. So I think that, you know, advice to parents and saying, oh, keep it simple, just switch to English. Uh, These are really short-sighted. I know there's good intentions behind it, but it's so Mm -hmm. short-sighted because if a child is in, you know, a situation where there's, you know, a heritage language at home or both languages at home, then that child's communicative needs include that heritage language, full Mm -hmm. stop. And both languages need to be supported. And we know kids can do it. It's part of their cultural identity as well, right? Language yep. has so much yeah. value and it brings along with it, um, you know, a lot, an, an emotional component. And it's it's much more than just words. 
Yeah. Um, no, I, I definitely like how you highlighted that it's not because it's not for a lack of capacity. And I like Catherine Corner. She's now retired, but she used to uh, do a lot of research <laughs> on bilingualism in, from the States. Yep. And she came up with the MOM acronym. So means, opportunities and motivation. And yeah. so, you know, the capacity is kind of the means you're looking at your, your cognitive means. And, you know, she really uh, stressed the importance of opportunity exposure. These children need to use the language, hear the language, be exposed to it. But then also they need to be motivated. They need to want. And so when we're talking about non-elective bilinguals, those who don't have a choice, they, they know they have to learn the majority language. I think the motivation is there for those for those. Yeah. Um, in a lot of French immersion programs or even in a lot of French schools where children are learning, you know, French as a minority language. Um, what I've seen and anecdotally what I've heard is sometimes by, by, you know, high school, some of these kids lack the motivation. They're not too sure anymore. Why am I even in French school? You know, everything around me is in English. And so um, I think that's also very important. And just to kind of take a step back and maybe have that discussion with, with those children, you know, why are you learning a second language when it's, when it's elective, of course, when it's yep. not by choice and, they, they, they are learning it because they are, uh, because of their circumstances. Yes. Okay. So the message here then is bilingual children who have a, you know, language disorder or children who have a language disorder can learn more than one language, but at the end of the day, they need to have opportunities. They need to be exposed to this language. It's very important. Language does not just happen. You have to be exposed yeah, yeah. to the languages. Yeah. So we've kind of answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think it's really important to ask it as a, a separate question. Do bilingual children with a uh, language disorder have a double disadvantage then? So, you know, the fact that they're bilingual and the fact that they have a language disorder, is that two disadvantages for them? I would say absolutely not. Um, I, I think that, you know, all the evidence points to the fact that um, bilingualism is not a disadvantage. It doesn't make um, their language disorder, say, worse in their first language. It doesn't compromise their second language to have another language along the way. So they, they can learn, uh, children with, say, developmental language disorder can learn um, two languages to the extent that they can learn any uh, one language to, you know, eventually to similar degrees of proficiency and abilities with the unique profiles that that they have. So spreading their linguistic abilities across two systems doesn't um, overall diminish their linguistic results at the end of the day. So I would say that, you know, there is not a double disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think I would have to agree. And all, like you said, all the research points to that. And so I think um, we we have to keep in mind here that very important element that we just talked about, opportunity, yeah. exposure. And that's kind of yeah. one of the key ingredients here. So a lot of teachers, a lot of speech and language pathologists, educators work with children who are bilingual, children who might have a um, communication disorder. So what advice would you give such professionals about second language acquisition for, you know, more specifically non-elective bilinguals. So those children who are speaking a heritage language at home. I think um, one of the, the, the key things is um, don't discourage uh, the use of the home language. Uh, keep the home language strong if the child is still using it and if the parents are not fluent uh, speakers of the second language. So don't go down that road of thinking one language only is simpler or better because there's no evidence that that is the case. Um, I think that, um, you know, some of the challenges that many speech language pathologists have um, disclosed to me or asked me about are um, they know how to support the child's English development because that's, you know, how they're trained and that's how they design all their programming and that's the language they know. But then how do they support that other language? If bilingualism should be part of the plan, and I, it should be, um, that a bilingual child's communicative needs include both languages, how does the SLP actually support a language that they don't speak? And this is a really, really good question. Um, and I think that um, one of the things that I, I um, suggest 
is um, making bilingualism the foundation of everything. Because I've heard um, from individual speech-language pathologists, and I'm also working on a study um, with some colleagues looking at parent experiences who have children with autism and parent experiences. Um, and one of the things that um, they often say is that the SLP hasn't told them not to use their heritage language, but the SLP does not enthusiastically support it. Like they say, well, it won't hurt your kid if you keep speaking your language. Mm -hmm. Well, many parents thought that meant, no, they shouldn't do it. Okay. Also, many um, parents have said, well, they had no way how to go about it. Like sometimes they said, SLPs told them, look, you know, I'm only doing the English part. I can't do your language. You're on your own. So, you know, the the parent's ability to support the heritage language is a do-it-yourself project, which is not going to be very successful. Um, so working together with parents as a resource to transpose some of the things, some of the things you're asking them to do at home, um, I guess you, I mean, I'm talking about SLPs here, working with parents to figure out, okay, this is what we're doing in English. How would this work? in your language and use parents as a resource. Older siblings can also be a resource. Cultural brokers can also be a resource to transpose what you're asking them to do at home into another language. Um, and that may or may not involve, literacy can be a sticky issue, um, but doing so will enable um, parents to feel, I think, a lot better about their child's bilingualism if there's mm -hmm. an active, make the bilingualism the foundation of the intervention planning. Um, mm -hmm. So just, and, and, and setting, um, setting a tone that, you know, oh, that other language, that's not my business because I'm the English speaking SLP. So that's one thing. Another thing that um, I, I think is supported by the research, some of it from Catherine Connor, mm -hmm. <laughs> who you mentioned earlier, is building a team approach um, to intervention with kids who speak a language that is different from the language that the SLP um, speaks. And by team approach, I mean some resources of, uh, again, parents, older children, maybe community members, maybe people from the school Um just thinking in terms of a broader range of people who might be able to help. Now you have to tailor some of the tasks like general language stimulation tasks are probably going to be easier to train people who are not professionals to do. Um, but that's better than nothing um, better than having no planned stimulation or nothing going on in that, that other language. Mm -hmm. So those are the two two main things that that come to mind in terms of general advice. I am not a speech language pathologist myself, so I don't want to get any more specific <laughs> mm -hmm. than that because I, I don't know what to say more specifically than that. No, but I think that that's very helpful just to take into consideration the heritage language and that there's, like you've said several times during this episode, the two languages will build on each other rather than, you know, the English language take away from the heritage language or the heritage language. Heritage language might take away from the English language. So I think um, it's important to see the child as, as a whole and see those languages as being part of who that child is. And they're bringing along yeah. so much knowledge already. And so sometimes um, I know that I've heard from teachers, they might feel like that's going to be detrimental to their learning. Oh, like they, they, they use a lot of the syntax from their home language into their, in the English language. And, and it's kind of the words all mixed up and, so it's how to take, okay, but they can make a full sentence in their heritage language. Let's see how we can build on that, you know, make, draw the yeah. parallels and, and show the child how it's, oh, in your home language, it's like this. Look, in English, this is the adjective comes before the, the noun or after the noun or, you know, it's kind of to, like you said, not be afraid of that, that home language, even if we don't speak. And it's easier said than done, but I think it's kind of our, all part of our mindset how we look at all the languages that are spoken. And like you said, a teacher who has a dozen different heritage languages spoken in her classroom might feel a little bit overwhelmed. But um, I think if we take a step back and look at languages as building upon one another, then it, it becomes less cumbersome. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the great advice for teachers. What about parents? So what kind of advice would you give parents of children who speak another heritage language at home and who are learning English in school, um, 
for the first time? What kind of advice might you have for them? Well, you know, one of the interesting things is parents um, often want to help their child learn English, the majority language, as much as they can, because um, many are, you know, they're concerned uh, because they know there are monolinguals in the classroom and their child is sort of um, behind quote in their English, although they're not really behind, mm-hmm. but they they have concerns about their academic success. So they, they often um, are all about English and all about wanting to support English. And I get so many questions of how can we support our child's English? How can we you know, make their English, them learn English faster? What can we do at home, et cetera? And um, I'm not, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I'm opposed or that um, I would suggest you know, forget about English completely. Obviously, English is the language of schooling. It's the, the majority language. Obviously, English is going to come into the household mm-hmm. and be and, and take up a lot of room in that household because it's the majority language. I mean, if you're helping your children with homework, obviously, that's going to happen in English. So, um, you know, there's no, um, you know, purity or, you, you know, language, ha- only the heritage language at home. That's never going to happen, right? And I think, you know, positive, um, positive, helpful attitudes toward the majority language are really good. But here's the thing. Children don't need a lot of motivation to learn English, as you said. (laughs) Um, It's there. In fact, what they need motivation for is to keep up their heritage language. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know from all the research, it's better for them if they do. It's better for family cohesion, for socio-emotional development, for Mm -hmm. identity. Um, There's even uh, research on um, how it's, you know, educational and employment opportunities later in life, identity when they're adolescents, which is a huge issue, et cetera, et cetera. So um, keeping up maintenance of the heritage language is really important. And for parents, who are often like super, super concerned with how well the children are going to do at school to bring that up. It's almost like you're at a disconnect. Like they're talking about something over here and you're Mm -hmm. talking about this other thing over there. Um, But I think that, you know, so sometimes it's a hard sell. And, uh, and for some parents, especially if they're, you know, now if parents are really fluent in English, to be quite frank, if um, the heritage language fades away, um, there's no, there's not going to be communication barriers. There might be fewer identity issues and all that in, in the family. So we're mostly thinking about families, which are the majority of heritage language families where the parents are not super mm-hmm. fluent English speakers. So, you know, um, if you do manage to get the parents' interest in away from English and toward the heritage language, they'll often say, well, my child doesn't seem to want to speak it anymore. I talk to them in, you know, Mandarin and they answer me in English. So what to do about that? Um, And of course that, you know, for those of us who raise children in in French in a minority context in Canada, we have Mm -hmm. exactly (laughs) the same experience. Right. Um, So I think that, uh, you know, there's no magic here and children are all individual personalities so you know they will have different paths but there's some things that parents can do um, that like for example redirecting your child if they respond to you in English redirecting them to the heritage language in a gentle and positive and encouraging way sanctions don't work Mm-hmm. Um, you can use uh, methods like recasting what they said in English in the heritage language. If they if they have um, if they say something in the heritage language that's very limited, or they use a mixed sentence, maybe you take the word or two words they use in the heritage language, expand on those words again in the heritage language, and just increasing their amount of exposure. So first of all, we know that diversity of how many interlocutors, how many people that child gets to interact with in that language boosts their heritage language abilities. So getting, um, maximizing exposure to different speakers. And now we have all kinds of great tech that you can use yeah. for that. You can have Zoom with um, family uh, in, in the home country or in other places in, in Canada. You can... Um, create diversity of experience um, in that language and through interlocutors and also through um, interactions, book sharing. We know written language is more complex 
than spoken language. Now that doesn't work for families who don't have a literacy culture at home. Fair mm-hmm. enough, but they might have a really strong storytelling culture yeah. or singing, rhyming culture or, or other things that are richer language. And what you want to ask people to not sort of avoid is a slippery slope so that the heritage language becomes a language of regulation with children. Mm -hmm. So that's the language you use to tell them to dinner's ready, get your boots on. Um, Some people have used the term kitchen language, that the heritage language becomes the language of food and casual family talk about, you know, very, very basic topics. And you know, children need to um, have a bigger repertoire in their heritage language in order to motivate them to keep speaking it. Mm-hmm. Um, so access to media in that language, um, talking to children about scientific topics in the heritage language. Um, say you're looking up at the sky and stars and moon and you know something about this and you know how to say it in your heritage language, just, just do that. Mm-hmm. So they they're not just heritage language isn't just regulatory. It's a rich and important, interesting language. It's motivational and it also builds the vocabulary and grammar of the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, trips uh, back to the home country can be like a tonic. There's many, many anecdotal reports about this in the, the research literature, and I've seen them in my personal life. You know, mm-hmm. uh, for us, it's like trip to Montreal. Whoa, there go- <laughs> <laughs> up goes the French, you know. Um, so not all families, although refugee families can't take advantage mm-hmm. of, of that opportunity. So we always have to be sensitive and thinking what it is and isn't possible for a family. Sure. Um, but, uh, and the, I think, the last thing that I think is really important is that parents sometimes um, give up on the heritage language. Sometimes the child, sometimes parents, they they see their child using the heritage language or, uh, you know, the vocabulary, the grammar in ways that are kind of different from what they know from kids in the home country. Because acquiring a heritage language in a majority context is a different path in mm-hmm. acquisition. Um, there's going to be limitations in vocabulary. Children are not in school in that language. Their complexity of their grammar might be different. There might be some things that we would consider errors in mm-hmm. their speech. But Convincing people that none of that really matters, that bilingualism isn't an all or nothing thing. It's not like if you're not perfectly equally fluent to absolute monolingual levels in both languages, which is extremely rare, if not impossible. (laughs) If you don't achieve that, then you're not really bilingual. And what's the point? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, you know, bilingualism isn't like that. You know that. I know that. Yeah. Like people who are in, who are in a mi- minority majority context know that. Um, but sometimes you have to convince people that some proficiency in that language is valuable. You know, it's 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 um, something really important in in um, you know uh, in that child's life and in their um, their experiences beyond language. So socio emotional mm-hmm. identity culture, and it doesn't matter if it's not you know perfect. Yeah. Wow, I couldn't agree more. And and also, we can't forget the fact that languages aren't separated in the brain, right? And so English will come and influence the heritage language. So, you know, when you're thinking about yep. something, you want to talk about your day. If the child is trying to talk about it in the heritage language, but he lived <laughs> the day in English, yep. you know, some words are going to come in and, and that's okay. That's okay. If, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's okay code switching, putting the two languages together is a normal behavior for bilinguals. Mm-hmm. Monolinguals, sometimes it, they, they have, they're kind of afraid of it. I've actually had a teacher saying the children are mixing their languages. How do I get them to stop? And because like, they do it when they're talking to each other. She goes, how do yeah. we get them to stop that? And I'm like, well, why do you even want to? I mean, mm-hmm. they're stretching their communicative resources in a creative yeah. way. And they're succeeding in mm-hmm. communicating, putting their two languages together. Um, in a, and it's it's natural, normal behavior for bilinguals. Yeah. And we shouldn't have to stop them. And in fact, all the research shows that children are really, really clever when it comes to code mixing. Um, that's mixing the two words, words from the two languages. They can they know not to do it with monolinguals mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> from a sure. very early age. They figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so if bilinguals are doing it with each other, that's, that's because they're bilinguals and that's what bilinguals do. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be stopped. And it doesn't mean that they're going to degrade their abilities in the two languages. So. Yeah. And we do it as adults, right? If you're, spe- if you're bilingual oh. and you're speaking to someone else who speaks the same two languages, yeah. it's just, it just happens very naturally. It well, happens very naturally. Yeah. You've given so many totally. great pieces of advice for parents. One that I just wanted to add, and it's something that I, it's not based on research, it's based on personal experience. So I have three kids. They're all teenagers now, 13, 15, and 17. And my husband is Anglophone. And so, you know, we, we speak both languages at home and it's constantly in both languages. <laughs> um, but one habit that we've gotten into is when I text my kids, it's always in French. So for whatever reason, that's just been the way that it's always been. And I haven't really had to say anything about that. They just know. It's like when I text mom, I text in French and everything just, you know, at the odd time, they'll, they'll, they'll yeah. write something like, I don't know, or whatever, or, you know, yeah, but right. I, I found that very interesting. It just, it just kind of happened that way. And so that's something else, right? If it's a heritage language and the parents, um, are able to, to text in that language with their kids, that's something else, like something else to give them that exposure, um, and again, that might be kitchen language, but it's, it's something and you can, you can have some, and sometimes I'll, I'll even make a point of using, you know, maybe a, a rich vocabulary word, not because I want to make it complicated, but it's just the word that I need to use. And I'll find like a little emoji to help my kids understand what I'm trying to say, or I'll give them the word in English, but mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I, I, you know, I, sometimes I'll write it in English and I'll go back and erase. No, no, I'll give them the word in French. They need to know what it is. So anyway, I just thought that written language with, with smartphones, we communicate with our children a lot more in written form, I think, than, than I did with my parents anyway. The only time I would communicate with my parents in a written form is when my mom would leave me a to-do list on the kitchen counter when I got home <laughs> from school, you know, whereas now... There's a lot more written communication between parents and children. So just another um, area of exposure that we can take advantage of for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I also think what's fun is when you have something like that, like say the, the text, the chats, that it's, you know, you, you do it in one language, the minority language, it becomes kind of a a great space for exploring and learning that language because, okay, our habit is, this is the language we use when we text. Mm-hmm. So it creates a space for that language yep. separate from, so it's not like, you know, so English doesn't encroach everywhere, yeah. on everything <laughs> that we do in every, yep. every, um, uh, every area. And I, I, when my kids, cause my kid, my kids are adults now, but they, um, when they were teenagers, certainly um, they were in a lot of sports activities mm-hmm. and uh, dance activities. And um, we, you know, depending on the language of the activity, um, sometimes uh, soccer at the early stages was in French and dance was always in French. So we talk about mm-hmm. those that sport and what went on there and dance. Everything was always in French. And it um, uh, I think that was it was good. That mm-hmm. was healthy because we had a topic when we talk about this topic. It's French. That's right. You know, it's it's protective of the minority language a little bit to have that stuff. And, yeah. you know, the kitchen language thing, I, you know, I don't particularly like that term, but right. not all language uh, interchanges are, you know, with complex sentences and complex vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And that's normal. So we, right. you know, shouldn't kick ourselves for not always adding this. It's just, uh, you know, be mindful to, mm-hmm. to, to add it when you can, especially because the child isn't getting it at school. I'm talking here, referring back to, say, the heritage language. Yeah, for sure. Well, I am watching the time go by so quickly. Um, thank you so much. I um, have We have a lot of tips for, for professionals, for teachers, for speech and language pathologists, for parents. Um, do you have perhaps any take-home messages from, from all of this for our listeners? I guess, you know, I think for me, one of the... Um, An important take-home message concerns children who are bilingual and have language and communication disorders. So children who are bilingual with developmental language disorder, autism, Down syndrome, fragile X, you know, Mm -hmm. just, um, I think one of the things that's really key to keep in mind is that we often think about children with disabilities as having a combination of strengths and weaknesses. And um, playing up to their strengths is really important Mm-hmm. And I think that we should consider capacity for bilingualism to be one of their strengths. Yep. And 
for that reason, just in a nutshell, you know, supporting bilingualism in children with language communication disorders is playing to their strengths. Yeah. And so it's important. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more because not everybody is bilingual. And so if you've got a child or youth who is bilingual and perhaps they have a learning disorder or language disorder or another disability and they're bilingual, then that's, that's fantastic for sure. They have, they have an asset. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an asset. It's something that they can, they can do that sort of on the positive side of of their, their development. So go for it. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Um, I briefly mentioned um, the book for which you are first author, Dual Language Development and Disorder. So I will put a link to that book, uh, Brooks Publishing website, in the show notes, as well as the website you mentioned. Um, if if you wanted to share any other resources, you know, send them my way and I can put them on the show notes. But um, anyone who's listening can find all of those at theparleypodcast.com. So thank you so much, Joanne. It's been a real pleasure discussing this uh, very interesting topic with you. Uh, You have so much knowledge, so much experience and wisdom. And so um, I hope that our listeners have appreciated, you know, all of the fantastic strategies and tips that you have shared with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and please be sure to check out the show notes at theparleypodcast.com. Also, please share with anyone who you might think uh, might find this interesting. There's a lot of misconceptions out there about bilingualism, about bilingualism and language disorders. So share widely. When we raise awareness, we provide better services for children who are bilingual and who might have a language disorder. Take care.